Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hello and welcome to the living history uk podcast a podcast for the discerning and knowledge hungry historians out there you can support our podcast and get much more from living history uk by joining our patreon from just one pound and by doing so you'll be a part of an ever-growing community and really help to make a difference as we strive to keep history alive but for now enjoy this podcast Hello and welcome to the Living History UK podcast. Today we're going to be talking about the Africa campaigns in World War One. As we all know, the main fighting of the war happened in Europe. Uh, so why why was there fighting in Africa? So to join me on this podcast is Dom because he knows all things random. Hello, Dom. So before I even begin, Pete, what exactly do you know about the Great War in Africa? Very little, to be quite honest. Um, I know that there was campaigns in Africa. Um, I know there's a little bit going on in Egypt. Uh, I think there's a bit going on in like West Africa, I think. But that's about the extent of my knowledge. But I think also, I think if I remember right, I think it it was, yeah, West Africa. East Africa, the Germans actually did very well out there. They actually done quite outstandingly well, if I remember rightly. But that's that's literally the extent of my knowledge of World War One Africa. <laughs> well, Pete, you've you've done better than than most people. You, finally, some of my my ramblings have uh, rubbed off onto somebody. So yeah, in in East Africa, the Germans did quite well, which I'll uh, which I'll get onto later. So. As we all know, the Great War mostly happens in on the Western Front. And why did and why did it happen in Africa? Well, it was because all the major nations that were fighting during the Great War, of course, had vast overseas colonies. So, of course, Britain, being the largest empire in the world, 
coming along second by France. Again, this is in terms of overseas empire. Obviously, the Russian empire is something completely different. So, yeah, the British Empire, largest empire in the world. And then you've also got the French empire, which was, I mean, in terms of land space taken, in terms of some of the larger colonies in Africa, the French actually had some of the larger colonies. And, of course, you have the Portuguese. The Portuguese had quite a large empire overseas. And, of course, Germany. And some of the first fighting of the First World War, well, the first British round fired was not fired in Europe. The first British round that was fired during the Great War was fired by a company sergeant major in the, I believe it was the Gold Coast Regiment, and his name was Company Sergeant Major Gurushuni. And he fired this, this round going into, I believe it was um, Togoland, which uh, which was a German colony. And so the Gold Coast, the Gold Coast Regiment was part of what was called the West African Frontier Force. And they were staging, and their sort of the main staging post is in uh, modern day. So Britain declared war, I believe it was what, on the 4th of, 4th of August, 1914. And the West African Frontier Force went over into Togoland on the 4th. So literally, as soon as war was declared, bang, British troops were already taking the fight towards the Germans. And this was in the German colonial territory of Togoland. Togoland didn't uh, didn't uh, fare very quickly um, and it very quickly fell as it was only dis- um, defended by a very small colonial police force. But what was important in Togo was it had a very, very large radio station. And of course, the Germans who also who had the third largest f- fleet in Europe at the time, and they wanted to take on raiding uh, missions, what have you, in the Atlantic and around all the various oceans of the world. So, of course, radio communicating back to Mother Germany was very important. So taking that radio station in Togoland was very was very important for the British to be able to cut the, these these various squadrons of the um, Kaiserliche Marine off from Mother Germany. So that is the reason why these, these battles happened, is because... The Germans as well, the Germans thought, oh, we want to keep Africa out of the war because this is a European war, this is a white man's war. Whereas the British um, attitude was, well, if you want to plunge Europe and the world into turmoil, we're going to bring our empire to bear on yours. So we have a load of African possessions, so we are going to turn our African possessions against your African possessions. So the die has been cast, those who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones so to speak so that is the reason why africa was as much of a theater as what the western front was that's very interesting and it also makes perfect sense as well you know like you're saying it's bringing war to their colonial interests basically isn't it so yeah that does make perfect sense and the other thing i didn't realize was is how quickly the british army mobilized their troops who were stationed in africa that's something i've learned new today so today's school lesson for peter is how quickly the british army mobilized in africa so what countries actually took part in the great war in africa then as a whole uh, I've heard you, you mentioned a couple, but what's the actual list of involvement or involving countries? Basically, the whole of Africa, more more or less. So if we if we go on a very whistle stop tour of of Africa, of course, there are only two Afri- modern African nations that were not 
part of any international empire. And that was Ethiopia. Ethiopia being very famous for the fact that it was never conquered by a colonial power until the Italians did so in the 30s. And Liberia. But you could argue that Liberia was part of the American empire in that regard. So those who don't know, Liberia was set up as an African uh, nation uh, after the Americans abolished slavery in the 1860s. So the French, yeah, so starting with the French. So the French have quite a lot, so the French uh, have a large portion of Africa. So modern day Morocco and the Western Sahara, Algeria, Mali, Niger, uh, Chad, what's now the Central African Republic, and and I think um, yeah, Burkina, what's now modern day Burkina Faso, uh, the oh, Ivory uh, or uh, Court d'Ivoire, yeah, Ivory Coast, uh, French Guinea, and uh, I think I said Senegal as well. A lot of uh, of so North West African Sahara uh, Sahara Africa was was French territory was a French colony, and believe it or not, the French were the were the only colonial power to use African troops on the Western Front, and the reason why is because the French just saw them as another asset for manpower. The reason why the British didn't bring their forces, um, their colonial, their African. Um, troops to bear on the Western Front was purely because of of Britain's so they they, they the British Colonial Office recognized that Africans you know they for hundreds of years the the tribes have fought and survived in the area that they live why if we want them to be as good fighters as what they are, already are in Africa why would we want to take them out of Africa if 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 war comes to Africa they will fight in Africa. And that's and that's the reason why is because we knew that that African troops would be effective fighters. Of course, you also have uh, European Africans in the sense of uh, settlers and and the and the offspring of the settlers, which brings me on to the British Empire. So, of course, South Africa, South Africa, of course, had only finished fighting the Boer War in, in, in 1902 and, and became an independent colony with its responsible government in 1912 under the old uh, Boer leadership. So Louis Bota, the first prime minister of the of the Union of South Africa, was an old commander of, of Boer forces during the Boer War, but he was also General Louis Bota of the South African uh, of the South African Army, who actually led troops into battle himself uh, during the German Southwest Africa campaign, which I'll get back to later. So South Africa, what's now Botswana, which it, at the time was Bukana land, modern day Zimbabwe, which was the colony of Southern Rhodesia, again a very new colony. Um, so co- uh, colonized um, by Cecil Rhodes in the uh, in the eighteen. 18- 90s, the early 1890s, you've got Northern Rhodesia, you have what's now, which is now uh, Zambia, you've got modern day Malawi, which at the time was Nyasaland, you have the 1st and 2nd Battalion of the King's African Rifles, a very formidable fighting force coming from Nyasaland. You have Kenya, you have Uganda, you have Sudan, you have, of course, Egypt. Well, Egypt was a colony, it was a sultanate, it was an independent sultanate, but basically the the defense policy of Egypt of the Sultanate of Egypt and the foreign policy of Egypt was decided on Whitehall. So it was 
hey, Sultan, you can still rule over your people, but we'll make sure we know what's good for you. That was the crack, really, in terms of modern day, in, in terms of modern day Egypt. Um, uh, of course, you have um, you have Ghana, you have the Gold Coast, you have the Gambia. Um, I'm, I'm actually having to look at a map now, Pete, because I'm um, um, Sierra Leone. How could I not forget uh, Sierra Leone? Uh, and you have British Somaliland, or which is now, of course, Somalia. So these are all the British colonial possessions, uh, possessions which would fight in Africa during the Great War. Egypt, not as such, um, and 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 Sudan not as much um so in sudan you have what's called the sudanese camel camel corps they they see a little bit of action early on but not really much they were still mopping up with Mardis rebellions um and you have the portuguese empire the portuguese have angola and they have mozambique were some of the original colonizers of africa and they were even though they had hadn't declared war in 1914 they had actually mobilized very very early about the same time as the british because they realized that hey both of our colonies they we they neighbor german colonies so if the germans decide to declare war on us through some um through whatever manner they're going to come to us, so we need to be on top of this. And so even in 1914, the uh, the Portuguese, they mobilised what was called the Metropolitan Army, and that was European troops from, from Port- Portuguese troops from Portugal going out and beginning to start creating defence positions in both Mozambique and Angola. Mozambique would will come into play an awful lot later on. Uh, Belgium, of course, you have the Belgian Congo. They were also involved. There wasn't any fighting with uh, within the Congo, but they were still involved, especially in the East Africa can- campaign. So the Germans have what was called German East Africa, which is modern-day Tanzania. German Southwest Africa, which is modern-day Namibia, uh, and up until the 1990s, it was called, it was called Southwest, Southwest Africa. You have Cameroon, spelt with a K, of course, because it's German. Um, and you have, as I said earlier, Togoland. So administratively, Togoland and German Cameroon would actually be administratively just known as German East Africa, uh, sorry, uh, German West Africa. Uh, they were came under the same administrative branch of the German colonial office. And I believe I have exhausted all the all the African all the all the African colonies and all the African uh countries, Pete. So I hope I've answered your question in a very roundabout way. Well that was very in-depth, Dom, I have to say. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. To be honest, um, but yeah, that's um, a massive involvement from a lot of countries on one continent. But then again, you could say that about the uh, Western Front with all the different countries that were represented there as well. But so the war as a whole was the fighting isolated to a particular area, just like it was in Northwest Europe or uh, Italy, or was it a bit more widespread? Like maybe like um, more to how we'd see the um, like the 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 bush wars of the later 20th century happening in Africa. You say in August 1914, you have this initial attack on Togoland. And I believe the whole, I think it, I think Togoland lasts four days, something stupid like that, because it was only defended by police force. And so, so you have, you have multiple campaigns happening simultaneously, lasting um, various amounts of time. 
some fall quicker than others. And so you've got to remember from the outset, as soon as war is declared, the Royal Navy rock up on the shores of Germany and they, they blockade the Baltic Sea. You do get some ships that managed to go through the, um, managed to get out through the blockade. Uh, there was a, it was an old sailing ship that actually managed to break through the British blockade and, and resupply troops in, in German East Africa. Uh, so the reason why a lot of these campaigns, they last either very long, or very, very short, is, is because of the fact that from day one of the war, they are isolated. And the commanders in these colonies know that. So Togoland lasts four days. German Southwest Africa. So the South Af- this was a purely South African effort. There were no troops from any other colony really involved with this, with the exception of Southern Rhodesia, where the first, uh, first battalion of the uh, Rhodesia Regiment were involved with the fighting. And of course, the British South African police, the, the British South African police at the time was, was known as the regiment. They're a militarised police force. So they, they land at Walvis Bay, which is a South African enclave in uh, Southwest Africa. And then they the, the campaign really lasts from September 1914 up until March 1915. And this a lot a lot of it has to do with the climate and having to basically the German forces in the colony, they start off centralised in Vintuk, which is the capital, and then they go, one half goes north, one half goes south, which of course f- forces the British forces there, to, uh, when I say British, the South African uh, and colonial forces to split into two. And there's a lot of mopping up to do. So that, again, so that was number two campaign thing finished. Uh, Cameroon, again, starts 1914, and that lasts up until 1916. They did did very well in regards to that. Unfortunately, I'm not too brushed up on the Cameroon campaign, but they still relied, uh, in terms of the German fighting, they still relied on what we would consider to be more or less classical warfare moves and... And so, and you see the use of German use of heavy, heavy artillery and what have you in regard to that. Um, there's not as much trench, there's no real trench warfare at all, really, apart from, you know, the odd defensive scraping, the utilising of ditches. It's all old school open warfare you, and you're helped in a way by the, the landscape. And the last campaign that lasts all the, from the beginning of the war, all the way past the official armistice on the 11th of November, 1918, till the 21st of November, 1918. Um, so this is, uh, and, and, the, and the reason why it lasts so long is because the commander of the German forces, basically he destroyed his last, radi- his last radio the year before in 1917. So he was cut off. He was no longer fighting a traditional um, war or uh, manoeuvre and outmanoeuvre style war. He was fighting a guerrilla war. He turned his conventional army into a guerrilla army. And so they were living off the land and they were, they were given the, um, for, for lack of a better term, they were, they were given the British forces, um, you know, their comeuppance. They had them on a wild goose chase a lot of the time. And, and the only reason why he surrendered it was because one of his scouts basically said, oh, yeah, by the way, apparently this war we've been fighting is based, apparently it's over, so we're going to go surrender. <laughs> so, again, because he just didn't get the memo. And so you have all these campaigns ha- happening simultaneous to each other. Um, and as I say, isolated from each other. A uh, Like, for instance, that's the reason why Cameroon 
couldn't go and reinforce Togoland is because it was already on one side. You know, it's 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 got a load of French colonial positions on the other on the other side. It's um it's of course got British um a form uh, yeah another British uh, colony. So it's surrounded. So that these these four campaigns fought simultaneously, very isolated from each other. And, and yeah, and for your second, the second part of your question, Pete, the, the style of fighting that was going on. Yeah, you're very correct. What will you see during the Rhodesian Bush War and what you see during the South African border war to the latter half of the 20th century? It's very much that style of fighting. There is actually a Rhodesian his, historian that actually references, um, I think, I believe he was writing a book in the 1980s, uh, sorry, not, not during, the, no, during the 1970s, whilst the Rhodesian Bush War was happening. And he actually writes about how similar the circumstances were where you're going through this really thick bush, you're, you're, the safety on, on your rifle's off, and basically any movement in front of you is the enemy. It's, it's either you or him. It's, it's bayonets, it's machetes, it's hand-to-hand fighting. You get instances of, of British patrols going, going through the bush and then instantly just getting hosed down by an by a hastily entrenched German a German position that then by the time a, a another force comes along to see what's happened the Germans have gone. It's very much, a, especially in East Africa, very much a cat and mouse game. The German East African campaign, you do see a bit of trench warfare. You do see it, uh, during the Battle of Kilimanjaro. Battle of Kilimanjaro was literally on the side of Kilimanjaro, Mount Kilimanjaro. And the reason why you do see trenches, this is because this is really the last set piece battle that you get during any of the campaigns in Africa, especially the, the East African campaign where the, where the Germans dug in. And the reason why they wanted this to be their last set battle is because they were, were running low on ammunition. So they were, so the German Ascari were using, I believe it was called the Jägerbusch um, rifle, which actually fired black powder. And the particular caliber of this rifle as well, and the ammunition that they were using was 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 obviously, you know, the ammunition was dwindling low. I believe the particular force that fought with Kilimanjaro only had two hundred, but something about twenty thousand rounds of ammunition. So this is how incredibly skint of, of ammunition they were having. And so the the idea was this will be their last set piece battle. They'll splurge the last long rifle ammo, and then they're going to retreat into the bush and fight a guerrilla war. And they will then pick up weapons from the British and then eventually the Portuguese um, to continue to fight the battle. Um, you do see cavalry being used as well, unlike what you see on the, obviously during the early days and the very last days of the Western Front in Europe. You you see horseback um, in Africa. You see it, but at the same time though, it dwindles very quickly. Especially depending on the region you get, especially when you go towards an area. It's in again in East Africa called the Rafiji Delta. There's a lot of stagnant water, and you have this thing called the Tetsu fly. And the Tetsu fly, uh, when it bites a, a human being, it gives them sleeping sickness, and um, which and um, which is a very very horrible sickness. Uh, a sleeping sickness basically it it deprives you of sleep. Basically, it makes you go mad. And it's the only cure they had at the time was actually injecting cyanide into a person, cyanide and saline solution, which stopped the fever and um, the lack of sleep, but instead it, it kept the psychological effects. So that's what it had when the Tetsu flight, but a human, when it bit a horse, 
it killed a horse. So as you can imagine, these regions, uh, horse-mounted infantry was uh, very, very poor. And especially uh, some of the, the European-mounted units that were out there, I believe, I think there was an East African-European mount, mounted unit made out of uh, British settlers in Kenya, when I believe the ratio in 1916 was five men per one horse and you know these blokes must be a cavalry regiment so again so the doctrine is worlds apart from from what you see on on the western front and is more akin as as you say pete to to what you start seeing in the 70s and the 80s and and say south africa and southern rhodesia you know build they use the experience they get in in the first world war 50 years prior or what have you to their advantage one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. In my mind, it's just literally um, wars within a war, isn't it, really? It's mad, absolutely mad. But you've mentioned already the Battle of Kilimanjaro. Were there any battles that stood out during the various campaigns at all? Of course there was, Pete. So, uh, as I said earlier, I mentioned the, the first action of or the first British action of the Great War, of course, happening in Togoland. So, of course, there's that. And and fortunately, because it wasn't really a battle, it was more of a skirmish. Unfortunately, really doesn't didn't really have a name because it was just these blokes from the Gold Coast Regiment popping over over the border and shooting at policemen. So you can class that as battle. Um, but most of the sort of the key battles really are the ones that I can really think of at the top of my head coming in German East Africa, in modern day Tanzania. And so, first of all, you have what was called the Battle of Tanga, which happened in November 1914. And what happened is, so Tanga is a port. It was the port, apart from Dar es Salaam, um, on the east coast of Africa. Basically, a Royal Naval warship turns up to the uh, the port and they say, Oi, Germans, are you going to surrender? And the Germans go, we'll think about it. And the British go, okay, that's the response. Have you put any mines in the harbour? And the Germans go, no, we haven't. And so the British go, hmm, okay, well, we'll wait until you confirm your answer in terms of being fighting. And this is where it sounds absolutely mental, but all the officers from this Royal Navy ship actually go ashore and have dinner with the officers of the German garrison. It, it's... It, it's, it's mental. And then they have their dinner party. They shake hands afterwards. They go, good luck, chaps. Ta-ta. Uh, get back on the boat. In the morning, the Germans uh, raise up a white flag. And so the British go, oh, that's cool. So this warship disappears. Uh, and then the main British force arrive. And the main British force lands in two areas. They land um, a force in the docks themselves after sweeping for mines, of course. And this actually included one of the few British regiments that actually fought um, during during the East African campaign. This was the second Law North Lancashire regiment. And so they land, so they land in the in the port, and the rest mostly um mostly was Indian. Um, 
an, in, an Indian force. Uh, and, and unfortunately, these blokes, even though they stopped at Mauritius on the way, uh, the commander of this force was a very hard disciplinarian. And a lot of the Indi these Indian troops had never been to sea before. And they've been confined to the holds of these ships and they were not in a very good position. And so illness had started to set into these poor blokes anyway. So they pull up and so this force starts looking around so through through the port and through through the town itself and they find the place deserted. They thought, well, this is very fishy. Um, and meanwhile, whilst they're going through the town, the, uh, the force of Indians um, start advancing through the mangrove swamp. And then out of nowhere, the, the German Ascari start sniping at them and start setting in disarray. And what make and so this battle, the battle of the battle of Tanga, is also nicknamed as the Battle of the Bees. And the reason why is in, a, in, in, in the mangrove swamp, you had these great big hornet's nests. And what, were what the German snipers were doing were they were actually shooting at the hornet's nests uh, and making, you know, obviously going, you know, all these hornets going everywhere. And they were, were attacking the, uh, these Indian troops trying to, um, trying to attack. And so this completely routed the Indian troops all the way back to the beach. They're getting back on the boats, going back to the ship. Um, and, the, and the troops that were in the town, eventually they get pushed out. The, the German centre force into the town pushed them out. And so British colonial army get defeated by bees. Uh, and so uh, this is uh, just a little anecdotal battle, but it, it does sort of go to show about the just the nature of the environment. The troops weren't just fighting the Germans. They were they were fighting the flora and fauna as well. Uh, and so again, not, not, not necessarily a key battle, but certainly a battle that, that stands out as as being certainly of the um, of the theater. So like, yeah, like like any other um war and campaign, it has its uh, it does definitely have its turning points. But I think you've already um touched on it already, Dom. I was gonna ask the uh, parallels between Europe and Africa, such as uh tactics and equipment, but you obviously you've already enlightened us about the tactics, but what about the equipment that they were using? So in terms of the equipment, in, in terms of, of the soldiers' equipment, it really does vary by regiment to regiment and also period as well. So in so like you take, for instance, the Nigeria regiment. So the Nigeria regiment, so 1914, you have a battalion of the Niger, so the Nigeria regiment was one battalion of. They take part in the Cameroon campaign. And in 1916, it multiplies and becomes a whole bloody brigade. The, the Nigerian Brigade. And up until that point, they were still using more or less an equipment very similar to the old Slade Wallace equipment. And so, and they were even using uh, Martini Henry's up until the outbreak of war. Then they were, then they went over to the, the charger loading Lee, um, Lee Enfield. Um, and then sort of during the Cameroon, they then changed basically over to the 1903 pattern equipment, but without the bandolier. Uh, and then during 1916, they go via South Africa on a boat and then they go and fight in German East Africa and it's on this voyage when they get to South Africa they get issued all brand new short magazine Lee Enfields um, and it was also during this period that they get the 1908 pattern equipment and you also have have a really it's I mean by European standards it seems quite odd but by African standards it's it's quite natural 
So take, for instance, boots. Um, take again, take for instance the Nigeria regiment. Even um, sometimes the King's African Rifles. A lot of them didn't wear boots. That they were issued with putties, blue putties. They, well, they didn't. They didn't wear the boots, but they still wore the putties. So you do get this. You do get this really um, odd uh, image. A lot of wool pullovers. I know the t- the concept of a wool pullover in the African climate sounds odd to us, but it was a very hard wearing garment and had reinforced shoulder pads and reinforced elbows and quite a low cut color uh, collar. European officers, depending on what unit they were serving in, would wear, of course, the ubiquitous slouch hat or the Wolseley pith helmet. But a lot of the time, and you see going on later into the war, uh, the white officers in in the various uh, uh, native African regiments, they would start to equip themselves to appear to be more similar to their troops. So they'd start wearing uh, the, the same pillbox hats as what the the native troops would be wearing. They'd start carrying rifles. Uh, but I've even seen instances of, of, of an officer carrying an elephant gun with him whilst on patrol because, again, you've, you are, you're combating not only the Germans, but you're also combating the flora and fauna of where you're fighting even to the point where they would act where the officers will actually put on um, shoe polish onto their faces and arms to basically they're, they're blacking up to appear to be more like their men um, just as what you're seeing on the western front when officers are wearing what we call tommy suits where they're wearing other rank service dress and webbing and um, carrying rifles again they're just trying to lengthen their life expectancy in theatre um, of course, you do uh, the the European regiments that were fighting, um, the South Africans. They have their own weird set of stuff. But you have, as I said earlier, this um, you, have, you have the Second Law North Lanks, and you also have the I think it's the twenty sixth Battalion Royal uh, Fusiliers City of London Regiment, which is the Legion of Frontiers Battalion. And again, they'd be they'd be going overseas in the, in the khaki drill uniform, your standard away equipment, and again the uh, the Wolsey Pith helmet. And then the you have some of the other smaller colonies such as uh, North and South Rhodesia, the 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 European troops they were furnishing. Um, that that volunteered in into various local regiments. They they was their sort of signature was wearing a slouch hat, and especially the Southern Rhodesians who actually cranked it up a notch and they actually wore leopard fur puggeries on their slouch hats earlier in the war. Um, again, giving them a distinguishing mark um, as as their own colony and, and sort of breeding their own identity through the kit. And so yeah, in terms of kit and equipment that was being carried, uh, again all the small kits the same, still D shaped mess tins, blah 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 all that sort of stuff and so you have this huge amount of mishmash of kit and then you would all it would also be supplemented by locally made stuff you know you look at tommy on the western front and then you look at um an ascari of the second battalion king's african rifles it's, it's worlds apart but again it's 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 what works for them it, it's the theater that has dictated the kit in this instance well there certainly is a carnival of things things being used by all the various units that were operating out there so you've covered quite a few of what they'd call the the native regiments as as fighting men but was there any other roles africans had during hostilities yeah the, there was the ro- the role of porter that was the name the name of of the role was a porter and this was in Europe, you have the baggage train, you have the supply train, you have miles and miles of both engine-driven and horse-drawn haulage. In Africa, at the time, 
there were very, 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 very few roads, let alone paved roads. So when you're on campaign in the bush, there is only one way to get your kit and equipment from A to B, and that is with what is called a safari. Everyone thinks of the word safari, oh, you go and look at some lions and some elephants. The word safari, believe it or not, is actually a Swahili word, and that actually means a line of porters. So if you were to go on a safari, that means, yes, you would go hunting, go and look at big game, but it's referring to the big line of people walking in front of each other with stuff in their heads. Yeah, so the, the porter, arguably the humble porter, probably paid more of a role during the Great War than you, you could argue, arguably say an infantry soldier had because without the humble porter, n- none of the armies would be able to fight at all. And a lot of these porters as well um, would then volunteer as infantry soldiers. And you certainly see that in, in the German army. Um, all, almost arguably, it was used as almost like an initiation. Are they hard enough to stand up to campaign? Well, carry this big box of ammunition on your head. Uh, then we'll see how you fare. And if you can do that, then here's a gun. You've, you've earned it. And um, so, yeah, the role, the role of porter is certainly something that's incredibly overlooked. And that's like many roles during the First World War or any other war as well, is especially the, the supply chain is very often overlooked. So in your opinion, Dom, why do you think the role of the African soldier is often overlooked uh, when teaching and learning about World War One or indeed World War Two. But is it the fact of, say, even the war in Africa as a whole during World War One? Is it the fact of like it is with like Salonika, Mesopotamia, Gallipoli to an extent? It's happening too far away. Unlike the Western Front, it's literally happening a hundred miles away from the English coast. So is that what is that what the case is? Well, Pete, that is certainly a factor, but more, a more prevalent factor is the fact that imperialism is bad. And by saying imperialism is bad, you completely forget the contribution of the subjects of empire who fought for in defence of the empire. You have the strain of thought is empire is bad. I'm, I'm not trying to defend any form of emp- I'm not trying to defend imperialism here by any stretch of the imagination, but this is the, the thought process is empire is bad. So therefore, everyone who lived in a colony was a, was suppressed by the empire. And so how could someone who is being suppressed by an empire fight for it? And so by these incredible feat of mental gymnastics, it's almost forgotten about and it's almost not taught and it's enforced forgetfulness in the sense of the reason why no one wants to talk about an, the Africans' contribution is because it admits the, the concept of an African or, so, or not just an African, someone who, is, who lives under empire. It, it almost um, It almost says... Well, these people were supposed to be oppressed. It goes against the narrative, Pete. That's what I'm trying to say. Is the people who were supposed to be oppressed were fighting for it. And yes, you do have troops in the First World War who are fighting 
only because of employment or in some cases, in lots of cases, tribal loyalty. But of course, you do, you do, especially in the Second World War, sorry, First World War, and again, with the Nigeria Regiment, you, you get troops who are serving out of loyalty. Sometimes, on, again, not necessarily to, um, to the British Empire, but they are they're fighting out of loyalty to the company commander or, um, or, or their tribe. Again, forget to admit or, or don't want to admit is is actually how conscious Brit- the British Empire was in terms of military custom of various tribes. Um, recently, um, especially with the end of the um, of the centenaries, there was a huge attack on the Imper- on the Commonwealth War Graves Commission because of how little commemoration they did to African soldiers. The thing is, though, the British Empire was again. If you're if you're employing native troops to fight for you, the only way to keep their loyalty is to obey their laws, obey their rules, their tribal laws, their tribal traditions. You've got to go in line with them, otherwise they're going to mutiny. And so, what the Imperial War Graves Commission did in Africa was a lot of these, um, a lot of African uh, uh, tribal traditions, especially in terms of warriors and warfare, is you do not bury the uh, war dead; you leave them where they fall. Because of of of, spe- of spirits, if you disturb a body that's fallen in a battle, you'll upset the spirit of the fallen soldier. And so, these European officers who are in charge of these regiments, who will, who are, I'm going to say it now, these officers who fought, these white British officers who fought with these with these African regiments, will have much better understanding of African tribal culture than any university. Um, cosmopolitan um, so-called intelligentsia in this country and I will tell you that now for a fact and so they they had such good um, idea of this thing they went of, of trouble culture they went okay I know that we cannot move the body and so obviously if you leave a body on the battlefield obviously there's not they're not going to have a grave so obviously you know 100 years down the line the Imperial War Grove or the Commonwealth War Groves Commission is, get, is becoming under attack for being, you know, being, being racist and being senseless when in fact all they were doing was at the time they were they were following to the T tribal tradition. Sorry, yes, by today's standards, that's not very nice. But back then, in terms, especially when you're talking about tribal uh, tribal culture, tribal traditions, some of which the tribes have been eradicated through genocide um, by the uh, perpetrated by their own countrymen. You know, they're following it to the T. If anything, they're more respectful than some of these helmets today. But hey ho, and so yeah, and the whole idea of and and. I'm really glad today that the that the African soldier and the colonial soldier of the British Empire is getting more recognition, but it certainly does it does need to be covered more because of the huge contribution they made. And I and I hope from what I've been talking to you and rambling about to you today, Pete, has um, has helped shed awareness of the the huge feats of what the African soldiers did during the Great War. You absolutely have, Dom, and you know it. it it is, you know, it's sad, isn't it? You no, know, the way the history has been oppressed. Because, like you said, Dom, you're not trying to glorify imperialism, but the thing is, even before, you know, it, it's the birth of the of, of of the countries that they are today. You know, it's, you know, all those countries they're there now because of a result of of what was the empire, and to oppress those men and women who built that country, to oppress that, and letting their honours and deeds just be 
sort of left to be blown out into the wind is is very it's very it's it's sad it's very very sad and i also like on the the, the point that you brought up because I, I remember that when they were saying about the uh about the african troops during the centenary um about how it was attacked that they weren't being represented and 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 you have summed up you know the the officers who who commanded them they did they they've got they had a far far better cultural understanding to what anybody would have today, you know, anyone who you know claims to be an academic in it, and if they, you know all those all those sort of titles, you know, they did. They understood exactly what that man was uh, and his culture that he came from, and as a result of that, you know, it, with modern eyes, it's made it monstrous. But that's that's history for you, Dom. Thank you so much for enlightening us about the. War for well, the first world war in Africa. So, thank you so much to everybody that has joined us for this podcast. All the relative links are down below. Mm-hmm. And until next time, keep history alive. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to support it, then why not send us a PayPal donation? All donations help us pay to host the podcast and for us to create new content for your enjoyment. Furthermore, if you would like to submit a question, or even a subject matter for the podcast, join Patreon and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The links are in our bio. Until next time, keep history alive. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.